Hello, and greetings. Very glad that you've joined us. We're so glad that you're interested in spiritual matters. My name is Ethan, and I work with the Venice Church of Christ. We're disciples making disciples on the west side of Los Angeles. In Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 through 29, and chapter 2 and verse 24, the Bible says that God has made mankind in his image. Male and female, he created them. And that a man should leave his father and mother, cling to his wife, and the two would become one flesh. That in the design of human sexuality, we can see a functional metaphor for an understanding of the nature of God. In John 17, 20-23, Jesus prays that the believers in him who will hear the word of the apostles and come to belief would be one, even as he and the Father are one, that the Father is in him and he is in the Father, and that they would be... we would be in them, and they would be in us. And that idea of being in there is an idea of mutual indwelling. And yet, in that mutual indwelling between the Father and the Son and the Spirit, they remain distinct persons. And we call that perichoresis, or perichoretic relational unity. And so what's the, an idea of a mutual indwelling in which both persons remain persons, and yet are considered in relational unity, in oneness? Well... Uh, in, in human sexuality, in marriage of a man and a woman, in Matthew 19, 4-6, that the two are no longer considered two, but one flesh, Jesus says. And this analogy between sexuality and the intimacy which God uh, desires to have with his people is made evident and explicit in Ephesians 5, 31-32, where Paul quotes Genesis 2, 24, and then says, This mystery is profound, I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. The intimacy experienced in, in the sexual union of a man and a woman in marriage is a type of the spiritual intimacy which Jesus has with his people. So human sexuality is very good, can be good, and a function of humanity made in God's image, and part of God's creation in Genesis chapter 1. And it's hard to believe that anymore, isn't it, with all the different things that we hear about in terms of sexual morality uh, and all the difficulties that sexuality now poses. And it is a perennial concern in Scripture, uh, and sexuality is a major hotbed of depravity, suffering, and pain, as it was in Genesis 19, 4 and 5, uh, and Sodom, Leviticus 18, all the legislation about various... Uh, not permitted types of sexual behavior in Romans 1, 18 through 32, 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 20, Galatians 5, 19, 1 Thessalonians 4, 3 through 8, and Jude 1 and verse 7. So what has gone so wrong? Why is something that God has created good so easily, quickly, and thoroughly been debased, degraded, and a source now of idolatry, suffering, and pain? Well, in order to understand that, we need to understand the fall of man. And we'll see this in Genesis 3, Romans 5, and Romans 8 that sin and death have entered the world, and sexuality has thus been corrupted by sin. So, how has that happened? What does it mean for sexuality? How are we supposed to grapple with understanding sexuality in light of the fall? And so to understand this, we do well to go back to the story in Genesis chapter 3, and to see what happened. That in, As we said in Genesis 1 and 2, God made man and woman, put them in the garden, all was good. There was one rule that they were to follow. They were not to eat the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And in chapter 3, we see that the serpent is tempting Eve to consider that fruit of that tree, to eat it. And she partakes of that fruit, and she eats it. And she gives to Adam, and Adam eats it. And they become aware of all things in Genesis 3, 7-10 that they are naked. 
And they were afraid when God brought, uh, came into the garden, and they hid from his presence. And because uh, said that he was naked, God asked, How did you know you were naked? Did you eat from the fruit of the tree that I told you not to eat? And so there's punishment decreed for their transgressions. In Genesis 3 and verse 16, the woman is cursed with multiplied pain and childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. That uh, desire there, some have taken to be a power match, and, and, and yet it seems more like that it's a sexual desire. And for man's punishment is severe. Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and eaten of the tree with which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread, till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken. In for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. At that point man is cast out of the garden, and is to be clothed. God made clothes for the man and the woman that they wore, and they left the garden. It's also good for us to consider the immediate consequences of this event. We can already see that there's, a, there's some sexual overtones there with the nakedness and things of that nature. The, the, right after this, in verse 1 of chapter 4, Now Adam knew his wife, and now Adam knew his, Eve, his wife, excuse me, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of Yahweh. And again, she bore his brother Abel. So Cain and Abel are born because Adam knew Eve. And so we come to that uh, beautiful euphemism of, of Hebrew where sexual intercourse is spoken of in terms of knowledge. And, that, and that's important, because it shows that sexuality is not entirely defaced and distorted. That a man and, and will cling, leave father and mother, cling to his wife, he will become one flesh, and they will have a knowledge of each other that is not shared uh, with anybody else. And so there is something unique and special there. The, 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 the glimpse of intimacy is still there. But yet we'll soon see because the distortion, because Cain's great-great-grandson Lamech, in Genesis 4.19, has two wives, Ada and Zillah. And so sexuality is already being distorted. A lot of controversy about uh, the first four verses of Genesis chapter 6, where the sons of God see the daughters of men and, and procreate with them. Uh, however one wants to view that, though, we can be very certain that that is not what God intended. And in Genesis 19.4-5, we see the great sin of the Sodomites. They wanted to know the visitors that had visited Lot. And so we see that Adam knew his wife Eve, but these men want to know other men. So we can see the, the complete inversion of what God intended. We can see the full depravity of, of, of sexuality uh, over the generations on account of what happened in the fall. It's important for us to understand that the greatest horror in that story in Genesis 19 is the desire to violate visitors and to desecrate the laws of hospitality, which were sacrosanct. That's why Lot was willing to throw his own daughters under the bus, so to speak. They could know her, know them, uh, even though that we today recoil in horror that that would be Lot's response. Uh, but yet it made perfect sense in the time. In Jude 1 and verse 7, though, Jude speaks of what the Sodomites want to do as pornea, sexually deviant behavior. It's a parody of what God intended. And Sodom's destruction, at least in part, is because its inhabitants had inverted God's purposes for human sexuality. We can trace all of this back to the fall as we explore what 
the Apostle Paul has to say as he's trying to make sense of the whole picture of the redemption of mankind. In order to establish the reasons for the redemption of mankind, he has to go back and identify that from which man has needed to be redeemed. And so Romans 5, beginning in verse 12, Paul says it is, Sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin. And so death spread to all men because all sin. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. And he will continue. Uh, the free gift is not like the trespass, for if many die through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, about it for many. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin, for the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For if, because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many were made righteous. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, grace might also reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. It's a very important note. Paul is explaining here how Jesus' one act on the cross could lead to redemption, despite the fact that there is all that sin, because he points out, ah, see, all sin came from the one sin of Adam. Adam sinned, sin entered the world, and that's led all the other sins. So if sin entered in one world from the type of Jesus who was to come in Adam, so the righteousness of one person, Jesus, could atone for all that sin that had come from a singular source. And so that's a very important argument. Paul is not here suggesting original sin, the idea that we've all inherited a sin from Adam. Uh, what he is suggesting here is that because of what Adam and Eve did, sin entered the world, and that everything has been corrupted because sin is there. That death has reigned through sin. That's why all are under the sentence of death. So, uh, the implication... That we, the inference that we draw, that Paul is implying, is that if, if death entered because of sin, and sin happened here, before here there was no sin, there was no death. Because what God had created was very good, and without sin and death it would have remained very good. So the problem is sin and death. And so the problem of sexuality becomes sin and death. And Paul here does not give any confidence in the idea that through sexual intercourse of the parents, a child inherits sin, which is kind of the way that the original sin doctrine went, and, and why sexuality got tainted by association. Uh, sin is in the world, and all suffer on account of sin. But, as Ezekiel says in Ezekiel 18, the soul that sins will die. The, uh, sin is not transferable. Uh, it is, we live in an environment saturated with sin, but we will be held accountable for the transgressions that we ourselves have done. The law is given on account of transgression in First Timothy one eight through ten. But interestingly, as Paul notes here, important for us that uh, sinful desire means that when we know the law, it often leads to the temptation to transgress, and we'll, and that's also developed further in Romans chapter seven that you you don't know not to covet till you know not to covet, and when you know not to covet, it's much easier to covet. 
And so that's why law has a lot to say about sensuality. Thou shalt commit adultery is one of the Ten Commandments in Exodus 20.14. Leviticus 18.1-23, all the people you're not supposed to have sex with, um, uh, relatives, a man, an animal, uh, things of that nature, or if you're a woman, a woman, is all listed. And Israel, in Deuteronomy 24, with the divorce laws as well, and Israel is continually tempted to violate those laws. And that's why uh, Paul will constantly mention sexual transgression in his sinless and his exhortations. In Romans 1, 18-32, when they have committed idolatry, uh, all of the people of the world are given over to doing things they ought not do, and that is all termed in terms of sexual transgressions. In 1 Corinthians 5 and 6, uh, the great sin that this man has committed in the church in Corinth is he has his father's wife. And uh, the those who do not inherit the kingdom include uh, various forms of sexual people who have committed sexual transgressions uh, those who practice homosexuality are listed along with adulterers and those who commit sexual human behavior uh, talk about fleeing sexual human behavior in the, in the last part of chapter 6 Galatians 5.19 the first three of the works of the flesh are sexual human behavior, uncleanness and, and lasciviousness and all of those in some way relate to sexuality in 1 Thessalonians 4, 3-8, that the will of God is our sanctification, that we use our vessel in honor, and that we do not participate in sexual immorality. The reason it keeps mentioned is because it's a constant temptation, especially in a world where it's saturated with it, as the Roman, Greco-Roman world was. So we can see that. Now, the final piece is in Romans 8. When Paul here is trying to explain the Christians of resurrection... But in explaining the hope of resurrection, he's also making it clear what's going on right now. So in Romans 8, beginning verse 18, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now, and not only the creation, but we ourselves, who are the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes in what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. This last part about hope is very important to understand the passage. A lot of times it's easy to want to spiritualize. Well, he's talking about spiritual life. He's talking about spiritual resurrection. Ah, ah, ah. But in Romans 6, that's a present reality when we've been baptized. When we've baptized, we put to death the man of sin. We've been raised to walk in newness of life. In 2 Corinthians 4, we are as a new creation. So if that's what he's talking about, then Romans 8, 24, and 25 are nonsensical. Because we can see a spiritual life right now. We have it in Christ. We have it among the people of God. So he's talking about something that we don't have yet. And that's the redemption of our bodies. That's the resurrection. That's the final glory that God wants to give us, uh, to be revealed to us in Romans 8, 18. And that the creation is waiting for this as well, because the creation has been subjected to vanity and corruption. Not because it wanted to, but because of the one who subjected it in hope that it will also be set free from its bondage to obtain the, the glory. Freedom of glory of the children of God. That we and the creation both are groaning for this, in verse 20-25. That we're waiting for that adoption the redemption of our body. And so yes, he's looking for the resurrection. Uh, the resurrection, however that's going to happen, is going to set the creation free from its uh, cor- uh, hand to its uh, 
imprisonment to bondage, whether through fire, through, through some kind of transformation, it's going to experience freedom from the corruption to which it has been presently been subjected. And that's critical for our understanding of sexuality of the fall, because it shows the creation was subject to futility, but not because of itself. Okay, not willingly, it's been subjected by the one who subjected it, who is God. God has subjected it to futility because of corruption. What's that corruption? Going back to what I'm talking about, it's that entrance of sin and death. Before then, everything was very good. And of course, so the fall is the sensible place to understand when it was subjected to corruption. Likewise, the hope that the vanity corruption will be lifted is rooted in Jesus' victory over sin and death. That in 1 Corinthians 15, death will be the final enemy. And when it's put under his feet, there will be the resurrection, and that there will no longer be death. And so that's how the creation will be set free from that bondage. The immortal, the mortal putting on immortality, the corruptible putting on incorruptibility. But that's looking into the future. Now the creation is subject to vanity corruption, which we can put simply as things fall apart, things decay. And it's really a very important means of explaining the kind of things that we see going on in our in our world. Uh, there's natural disasters, there's birth defects, there's human limitations and temptations and corruption. All of that is because the world is subject to sin and death. That pain and suffering are an effect of sin and death in the world, in Romans 5 and Romans 8. And this is true even if those who experience that suffering have not or could not sin. That that they're so they're, we may call them the um, collateral damage of of a sinful uh, world a world full and saturated of sin. Uh, it seems cold. It's not meant to be cold, but just as a recognition that the consequences of sin and death affect those who may not have actually done anything to deserve it. But also that there's brokenness in the world. And explains why it's broken. Not because it was made broken, not because it should be broken, but it's been broken because of sin and death. And that there's hope that if sin and death are conquered, then the brokenness can be healed. But it recognizes that there is brokenness. And if there's brokenness in the world, there's brokenness in human sexuality. And it's because of sin. Even if if it's not because somebody has consciously sinned, it exists because of sin. So, let's look more deeply at how human sexuality is influenced by these things about the fall. Although we've seen from our looking at Genesis 3 and 4 and and these later passages, that human sexuality after the fall has been distorted, but not irrevocably so. Men and women can still cling to one another, become one flesh, and no longer be two, but one. That men and women can know each other in paracritic relational unity in the bonds of sexuality and marriage in Genesis 4, 1, Matthew 19, 4 through 6. That even though we live in a, in a uh, creation subject to, to sin and death and full of corruption, uh, Solomon can say in Proverbs 5, 15-19, that, that a man should in, enjoy the wife of his youth, to be intoxicated with her love, let her breast satisfy you at all times. You can have the Song of Solomon, which is an erotic love poem, uh, at its literal basic level, however you want to maybe spiritualize it, the literal basic level is still there as an erotic poem. In Hebrews 13 and verse 4, that the marriage, let marriage be held in honor among all, and it's bed undefiled, and that God will judge the adulterers and the sexually immoral. But because of the fall, sexuality has been subjected to corruption and vanity. In Romans 5 and Romans 8. 
And this corruption and vanity is manifest in one of two forms, and there's some interplay between them. There's temptation to sexual morality, and then there's a brokenness inherent in corruption. So we begin with the temptation to sexual morality. Okay, and that's something that we see uh, often condemned. When we say temptations to sexual morality, uh, we understand temptation in terms of what uh, James, uh, the brother of the Lord, has said in James chapter 1, beginning in verse 13. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. So, in, in our lives of sin, in, in sin, what happens is you have a desire. Uh, a temptation exists when you have a desire, and that temptation, when that desire is, is, is given reason to generate, becomes sin, and sin uh, will eventually manifest itself in death. And again, we go back to the works of the flesh, uh, which those who participate will not inherit the kingdom. The first three, sexuality and behavior, uncleanness, and lasciviousness. Orgies comes later. Likewise, First Corinthians 6, 9-10, through 10, the same thing, that those who do not care the kingdom of God include those who participate in, in adultery, sexual behavior, and homosexual behavior. Now, experiencing, and we need to understand something about that temptation, is that temptation itself is not condemned. Meditating on it, imagining it, or acting on it is what's condemned. There in Matthew 5, uh, you've heard it said, Thou shalt commit adultery, but I say to everyone who looks upon a woman with lustful intent in his heart has committed adultery with her in his heart. To, and we have to recognize that when we're in the creation that's been that's fallen, we're going to experience temptation. First uh, Corinthians ten thirteen that uh, every one of us that we, we experience temptation, but that God has not tempted us beyond our ability. That when He gives him, when there's a temptation, there's a means of escape. We're not going to avoid that. Jesus did it in Hebrews chapter four and verse fifteen. We're told that He was tempted in all points as we are, yet without sin. So was Jesus tempted? by sexual desire. We have every reason to believe he was. But he was able to be tempted by sexual desire without sinning. So temptation in and of itself is not wrong. We can overcome temptation without sinning. And that's very important for us to keep in mind when we talk about sexual desire and sexual deviancy. Is that a temptation is not a death sentence. A temptation is just part of life. It's what are we going to do with that temptation. Now if we use this term sexual deviancy. Sexual deviancy is really defined as what is out of the realm of what is good sexually. That everything else is outside the boundaries. And so what's the boundaries that we've seen? God has said that man will leave his father and mother, clean his wife, the two will become one flesh. That they're supposed to be in a covenant of marriage, and it's one man, one woman, whom God has joined to each other in Matthew 19, 4-6. That is the appropriate bounds of marriage. Anything outside of that boundary is sexually deviant behavior. Now, why does that happen? Romans 1, 18-32, uh, Paul talks about the digression of certain people, the de-evolution of people, so to speak, where he, he points out that everybody should know that God exists because of his divine power and divine nature manifest in creation. We've talked previously a lot about that idea that the divine nature is seen in humanity. And so when you don't give God the glory, but instead that what happened is they gave the glory to things on the earth. Uh, back in the day, creeping beasts and cattle and animals and demons should be even humans today more likely in terms of money or country or fame or power or sex or something like that 
they begin to serve the creature rather than the creator, and then God gives them over to do things that ought not to be done. Men burning in lust for other, for other men, women committing shameless and decent acts with one another. And God, and it said, in Paul's context, it says, God has given them over to that kind of behavior because they have not honored and served the crea- creator, but the creation. And so they just give full vent to their lusts. Uh, we see various categories of how this plays out. Modern hookup culture and orgies uh, involve the use of other people for sexual gratification without any intent of forming lasting relationships. And this is what's condemned in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. And it's important as we talk about sexual behavior, we're using the Greek word porneia. Porneia is often translated in the older versions as fornication. The fornication these days strictly means sex before marriage. Uh, but it also refers it also can be sexual morality or, or really bad relationship, just immorality. Uh, I prefer sexually deviant behavior. It's clunky. It's not one word, but because porneia comes from porne, the word for prostitute, it means that what you do with a prostitute. And in First Corinthians six, Paul talks about uh, the fact that uh, you should not become one with a prostitute because you should not make the members of Christ one of the prostitute. Uh, he says, flee from sexual immorality, flee from porneia. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the, se- the sexually immoral person, the one committing pornea, sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you are bought the price, so glorify God in your body. Well, what's going on there is they're, they're joining their bodies with a prostitute. And in that doing, there's the physical connection, but there's no emotional or spiritual connection. And so it's just a gratification of the lust of the flesh, and literally dehumanizing themselves, because they're disconnecting their, this, you know, the, the bodily impulse from the emotional-spiritual connectivity of it. And so that's why it's sexually deviant behavior. Uh, perhaps the most pernicious form of sexual deviancy is fornication. Uh, strict fornication, uh, the idea of sex before marriage, because it's sexual gratification without the mediating structure and environment of commitment and marriage. Uh, as we've, we've pointed out about God, God is a very dangerous God. God is a very powerful God, and you can't just get intimate with God without some kind of over, over, overriding structure, or you're going to get in big trouble. You're going to be damaged. And so that's why God has always mediated his relationship with people with covenants. God has decided, you'll be my people, I'll be your God. These are the obligations, these are the blessings. And in that covenant that he has made with his people, be it with Abraham, with, with Israel through Moses, with David, with, through all men with Jesus Christ, that will allow that intimacy to take place. And so it is in marriage as well. When you have that, that power of sex, uh, that intimacy physically, when the spiritual, and, and the, especially the emotional intimacy is not there yet, uh, you short-circuit relationships. You, you, you change relationships in a way that cannot be undone. And not a few people have gone into very destructive relationships because the uh, sexual connectivity uh, distorted the, un- the recognition that there was not sufficient emotional connection and that this was just not good. It's not a foolproof or fail-safe mechanism, but it complicates relationships, and that is why the intention of God from beginning is that there is a clinging and then the sexual behavior, because there's commitment before the sexual behavior so that the intimacy may be maintained in its proper environment. And it also is privileging lust over commitment and covenant. And that's why First Corinthians 7, because of the temptation of sexual behavior in the first nine verses, a man is to have his wife, and a wife is to, a, man, a woman is to have a husband, and are to give each other their conjugal rights. 
a big thing in today is pornography. And, and beyond the use of images of others for sexual gratification, it represents a disconnection, again, from of the mental stimulant from now not just the emotional connection, like with you know, prostitutes or with hookup culture or orgies, but even any kind of physical connection. It objectifies others and distorts sexuality, and it is lascivious, lustful behavior. And in fact, they're finding out a lot of people who have given themselves over to pornography have a very difficult time establishing healthy sexual relationships with other people because they can never find uh, the connection with other people to provide enough sexual arousal like they were getting in pornography. And pornography uh, is like a drug, and it often leads to more violent or more visceral, more specific, more deviant practice. Very much when when somebody becomes enslaved to pornography, do you see that digression that Paul talks about where they're given over to their lusts and they become incapable of, of enjoying healthy sexual relationships because of that pornography. Then there's the multiple partners. Polyandry, uh, where there's more multiple men in it with a woman, or polygamy, multiple women for one man, and both of those have a privileging of the sexual gratification of one over that of the others, because uh, no matter how many you may have involved in a room, only two can become one flesh at any given moment. Rape, sexual abuse, incest, pedophilia, bestiality, these are all forms of sexual gratification at the expense of others. It's an exercise of power, and it's a very corrupt power over others. And it does nothing but cause trauma and harm to those who suffer uh, from those sins. And in no way represents a healthy form of relationships, let alone sexuality. And even in our culture today, where we have various sexual things not being done, uh, the culture does all it can to provoke and simulate desires sexual desires to create dissatisfaction to sell products. That you're not pretty enough, that you're not good enough, you're not a man or woman enough, you should be doing these things, and by the way, here's a product that will help you do these things. Uh, part of our sin-sick culture and sin-sick world, where it, we are more and more likely to feel like we are strange if we are upholding what God has taught about sexuality. So that's the kind of corruption that we see often because of the temptation of sexually deviant behavior. But there's also the fact that there's this broken and corrupt creation. And we see this manifest in so many ways, from Romans 8. Uh, the natural phenomena, there's a life and death cycle. The fact that there's even death in the world and life and death cycle is a recognition of the corruption, the creation, natural disasters, and the fallout from those. Uh, there's artificial phenomena, war, hostility, and abuse. Everything falls apart and decays. Internal mechanisms break down. We can see this in cars, we can see this in buildings, we can see this in hillsides and mountainsides, we can see this in humanity. We see uh, birth defects, where just the, the, the wiring somewhere went wrong, the connections went wrong, and things didn't uh, come out the way that it normally would. Uh, we see it in tendencies and thought processes, attitudes, desires, and behavior. Uh, that Certain people recognize have mental illnesses, some because of things that have happened to them, some because of just the chemicals in their brain and the way that those chemicals are moderated. Uh, we understand that as now more like a physical thing, where if somebody was born without a leg, that's not really their fault, uh, but that still is something broken. It's still something that we, we need to heal or provide assistance to so they can manage uh, what's going on to the best of their ability. 
And this corruption manifests itself in the sexual realm. One way it manifests itself is everything we've just talked about in terms of sexually deviant behavior. Where does all that lust desire come from? Well, we live in a broken and corrupt world. Our sexuality has been broken and corrupt. And often will seek after things that it ought not seek. But we can also look at it in terms of uh, Jesus' kind of categorization, Matthew 19, 12. He talked about there are those who are eunuchs from birth. And these are people who are born with hormonal imbalances or with birth defects that render sexuality impossible. And there are some to this day who are not able to perform sexually. Uh, they don't have the parts, or that their parts have not, uh, do not provide the proper biological function because of some kind of birth defect. Uh, they're eunuchs by men. Uh, the fact that there are many who've been, had their genitals removed or mutilated by other people. And there are still people like that in the world today. There's also misdirected desires. And this, this is where we get into a lot of the controversy in our modern culture, because there's some whose sexual predilections are not toward adult members of the opposite gender. Maybe it's due because of hormonal imbalances. Maybe it's due to distorted mental wiring, abuse, or other factors, and this would include homosexual predilections. Uh, those with misdirected desires, among others, may have to be what Jesus calls eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. They privilege the will of God in Christ in terms of sexual desire over their own desires. Now, when we talk about this kind of brokenness, we need to recognize that there are difficulties and temptations that these kind of people are going to experience, and we're to have compassion. Um, we all recognize that we all have certain limitations because of genetics, because we live in a corrupt world. Certain things are just not easy for us as others, and we struggle with them. So all of us have various temptations that we struggle with. Others have different temptations they struggle with. But in having that compassion, we have no right to celebrate brokenness as part of or as consistent with God's purposes. That even if we recognize that people go through challenges and that we need to support people as they try to deal with their challenges, that we cannot say that that brokenness they're experiencing is exactly what God wants and that we should celebrate it as just an alternate lifestyle or an alternate way of thinking. This is also miles away from saying that people choose this. Okay, and that's a, a, a terrible distortion of what we've been saying. That people choose to have certain feelings or act a, to feel to have certain feelings. People may not choose to have the feelings. That people do choose to act on feelings. Uh, people do choose to act a certain way. Uh, that may be a more understandable way of acting based upon those desires. And maybe if we had those desires strongly, we would also struggle with maintaining. Uh, self-control and not exercising those desires, and we can certainly recognize that and sympathize with that without saying, well, this is, you know, we're going to see and change what God has said in order to fit and make you fit in and justify what you're doing. So what are we supposed to say about these things? You know, about all these forms of, uh, uh, of sexual temptation or brokenness. Well, it's good to consider what Paul has to say about it when he writes to those Thessalonians in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. For you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. For this is the will of God, your sanctification. 
sanctification being made holy. That you abstain from sexual morality, there's our pornea, sexual deviant behavior. That each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of the lust like Gentiles who do not know God. That no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter, because the Lord is an avenger in all these things. As we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you, for God has not called us to impurity, but in holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this, disregards not man, but God who gives his Holy Spirit to you. So, God's will for us is to abstain from sexual behavior, to control our own bodies in holiness and honor. In 1 Corinthians 5, 1-13, we see that there is no place for the tolerance of sexual behavior among the Lord's people. There's sexual behavior, a man had his own wife, I mean, excuse me, his own wife, his, his father's wife, and they, they were tolerant toler- of this, and they should have mourned. They, 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 Paul said that uh, in, in even though I'm not with you, I'm with you in spirit. And when you come together, I exhort you to hand this one over to Satan that he may uh, change his ways. And, and he goes on and, and talks there about the fact that um, he, he said not to have association with sexual more people. Not of the world, but those who would be a so-called brother who engages in, in, in idolatry, in insexual behavior and things of that nature, to not even eat with such a one. So there can be no toleration of unrepentant, sexually deviant behavior among the Lord's people. And this is not something that we just insist upon because we don't like people. It's something we, we want to love all people. We don't want to have to do this. But God has given us the responsibility of judging among ourselves, and we see these things so that the leaven does not spread. On the other hand, as he said there, not at all mean the sexually more of the world. Because in Romans 1... We also need to recognize that people in the world are going to commit sexually deviant behavior, and that we should not expect them to do otherwise. That's what they know. They don't honor God as Creator. They're going to be given over to their lusts. That's what Paul says. So we should recognize that's going to be the case, and humbly teach them the truths of God with a view to saving their soul, and not trying to lecture them as if they should know better, because they're sinners, they sin, and that we need to try to do what we can to encourage a more holistic, healthy form of sexuality than the one that they are participating in, because that's what they've been sold by the world. Likewise, in 1 Peter 4, 1-6, we should not be surprised uh, that when we live the sexual ethic that God has exhorted us in Christ, that the world is going to find that repugnant or repulsive. And they're going to seek to persecute us for it. We're not walking in the ways they did, especially uh, those who've come out of it. So if you were living in sexual deemed behavior or participating in sexual deemed behavior, maybe just uh, approving other people's sexual deemed behavior, but now you stand as a Christian, they're going to get angry about that. And they may try to, to drag you back into it or to persecute you for it. And Peter says that that should be expected. There's going to be a day of judgment. They're going to call to account before God one day. And so God's purposes of human sexuality are good, and they remain. But they are easily corrupted by the force of sin and death. And that's the struggle with which we are living today. So human sexuality was created good, and still has its good purpose in the covenant of marriage of man and woman becoming one flesh. That glimpse of perichoretic unity that reflects the relational unity within the Godhead. In Genesis, Matthew, John 17, Romans 1, Ephesians 5, and Hebrews 13, 4. That procreation is a consequence of human sexuality, and children remain embodied representations of how two become one flesh. 
representing the characters of both mother and father, just as God shared love within himself and created quote-unquote offspring in Acts 17 made in his image, which is us as mankind. That we walk around bearing the image of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, and the love that they share within one another, just like we as individuals are walking around as the embodied characteristics of our mother and our father in a combined, unified, and yet distinct way. In the resurrection, though, Jesus affirms that there's a greater hope of experiencing the fullness of intimacy with God and with each other, of which human sexuality is just a glimpse. When we obtain the resurrection, we'll be able to enjoy that, the transformation of the body from corruption and mortality, and it will negate the need for marriage and procreation, and therefore the exercise of sexuality in Matthew 22, 1 Corinthians 7, 13, 15, and Revelation 21 and 22. So yes, marriage and the exercise of sexuality in marriage remains good, but to devote oneself fully to the purposes of God and his kingdom by remaining celibate would be better in 1 Corinthians 7. Yet no matter whether we participate in human sexual behavior or not, we must all address the temptations of sexual morality as well as be aware of the brokenness uh, in, of sexuality in the creation because of the fall. And therefore we do well to affirm God's good purposes for sexuality, to avoid sexual morality, and to seek to support those who struggle with sexual brokenness and temptation. Again, so glad that you've joined us. We hope that you've been encouraged by this. If you have some questions or some comments or maybe you don't like many of the things that you've heard and you want to talk more about it, please feel free to to, to talk with us. Uh, maybe you just want to talk about other things, talk about being a Christian, maybe you're just going through some difficulties and some struggles and you need prayers or whatever we can do to be of service. Please let me know. Please contact me through my website, deverbovitae.com. That's www.deverbovitae.com or... Uh, if you'd like to learn more of the Venture to Christ, we can be of service. Uh, you want to meet with us or have a study, whatever we can do to be of service, please let us know by finding us online at VentureToChrist.org or through our social media. We again thank you. Have a great day.